thematic snippets of some information that we'll be gaining uh, in regarding the scripture today. Uh, as we started a few weeks ago, we started talking about wisdom and how important that was uh, and is for Christians to exercise in the world in which we live. Now, remember, we talked about that wisdom was properly evaluating circumstances and making godly decisions. Wisdom can be taken as an art of being successful and forming a correct plan and to gain a desired result. And then we talked a few weeks ago about two different levels of wisdom. Uh, talked about wisdom in terms of um, getting an understanding and stability and orientation. Uh, wisdom from the worldly point of view is being successful. It's knowing how systems work and how personalities can be intertwined and how problems can be resolved. Wisdom is also is a study, um, if you want to, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a secular view also. It's a study of the essence of life. Uh, it's the uh, effort to ponder the inner workings of time, life, events, and outcome. Um, we also understand that the core of wisdom is spiritual. The Bible tells us in Second, uh, second uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 2, verse 6, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. But when we talk about the contrast between wisdom and foolishness, a fool is described as someone lacking judgment and common understanding. A fool is someone made to look foolish. A fool is someone who is marked to be a person who is unwise. In Proverbs 1.7, the Bible depicts a fool. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we're thinking about wisdom today as we're looking at Psalm 73. Uh, the secular views of wisdom are shaped in the temporal and changing times that are based in several areas. It could be the pursuit of wisdom in regard to culture or experience or trends or values, or strong opinions, or morals, or expectations, or even ignorance. This particular psalm is a very gritty kind of a psalm. In fact, it's very raw in its approach to understanding and dealing with the struggle between our commitment and contrasting Christ in the observation to the world's ambivalence. So again, the scripture that was read this morning were just kind of little snippets of what we're going to be looking at today. So there's about four points we're going to be seeing today in regard to this psalm. What I'd like for us to do is take a moment to pray that God would capture our hearts, that we would hear what He would have to communicate to us about the struggles that we face and gain to gain understanding and depth in our lives. So let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege that You've given to us to gather today to not only worship you and to celebrate you and what you're doing around us and, and to see the invitation to participate with your working. And so, Father, we pray today that you would open our hearts to your word, that we would be driven to understand the depth and the significance that we all play in the economy of your kingdom. And so, Lord, there's times in which we struggle, we'll admit. There's times in which we doubt, we will say. But there's times, Lord, that we are strengthened by the power of your Spirit to stand firm in the things that we truly know. We thank you for our families. We thank you for the, this last week that many of us had an opportunity to spend time, whether, uh, whether electronically or whether physically, Lord. We, 
we just want to thank you that we are reminded of the important people that you've given to us in our lives, and that's all we get from your hand. Now, Lord Christ, would you be glorified today? May our hearts be drawn to you. May we be reminded of the eternal and wonderful sacrifice that you made for us so very long ago. At the very beginning of your ministry, we celebrate here Christmas as we think about your advent. And so we would ask that you would be glorified today as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the point, the first point that we're going to be looking at is the point of destruction. It says in Psalm 73, 1 and 2, it says, Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps almost slipped. The Bible tells us here some interesting things here about this individual. In fact, this psalm, he, it starts, it begins with the conclusion of this particular psalm in 73, in which this, uh, this writer announces that God is good to his people. There's no, there's no uh, misunderstanding of the fact that God is certainly good to his people. But he said, good to his people and to those who are pure in heart. That means a loyal commitment, a devotion to righteousness, an understanding of death and spirituality. But he said, uh-oh. He says, listen, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps almost slipped. Feet and steps, that brings us to a point of understanding that's, that's the manner, it's the traveling, it's the journey of life. And he says, I almost fell. Something disastrous was about to happen. He said, I begin to stumble and to slip, to lose his balance. I was thinking that we're heading into winter now, and I just want to say this. As we are facing times in which the ground will be frozen, be very careful as you walk. Amen? Amen. We all know that feeling as we walk into that parking lot, and all of a sudden we just kind of misstep. So be very careful. So we know what it's like for our feet to slip a little bit, and we know what it's like to be on the brink of actually getting ready to fall, and heaven help us if we do a lot of injuries. I was thinking about this stumbling and this falling thing years ago. I remember elk hunting with my uncle up above Packwood. And it was a deep, Douglas fir and hemlock forest that was there. And where I had to go was drop off the road and down this embankment, up the other side, and then walk this ridge. But on the far side of the ridge was this huge, steep hill that broke down into a river. And so it was several hundred feet from the top of this ridge down to this river. Now, it had rained, and so the trail was rather, rather muddy. So I'm walking along, and my right foot slipped as I was heading south on this trail. At my rifle and my left, I started to go down, and I set my rifle down, and I started to slide down this hill, and I'm thinking, oh, no. And as I was going down this hill, then I rolled on my shoulder, and then I began to tumble down this hill. And I was probably saying words that I probably would never say behind the pulpit. <laughs> and as I saw this tree coming my way, as I was rolling around, I reached out and I grabbed this sapling. And it stopped me from going the rest of the way down into that river. So I was really, really thankful. I, it's funny how you remember stuff like that. You know, I remember what I could see was the green of the the ground and the brown of the trees and the blue of the sky and the green and the ground. And it went over and over and over and I grabbed that sapling. I was on my way down. There's nothing more helpless to feel that you're losing your stability. So what is this writer talking about? He almost fell. He almost lost his identity, his orientation, his sense of value and judgment. He started to think about some things. Now this writer was not only a man influenced and inspired by the Holy Spirit, but 
he was an incredible observer and someone who had discernment. Because he goes on to say, now this is kind of a lengthy read as we look at the scripture, but I want us to capture this. He says, on the heels that my, my steps had almost slipped. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eyes bulge from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high, they have set their mouth against the heavens, their tongue parade through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and the waters of abundance was drunk by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased their wealth. Wow. You know, it can be difficult for us to live godly. The contrast that we see around us in our world, we're truly being challenged. Now, he sets the pace of what he was struggling with. He said this, a couple of things. And then he kind of rolls along with illustrations of what he's saying. He said this, I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he makes these observations. Well, this word envious means the painful resentment of someone appeared advantage with the desire to have what they have. Being envious means to see what someone else has had in their life, their experience, their resources, and desire with all of your heart to obtain the same thing. He was envious of these. He was envious of those who had no concern for death. He was envious for those who are ignorant and callous and surprised when the troubles that come. They don't have the troubles like normal, like us, like people that experience the average life, the common concerns of life. He was envious of their pride. It seems like their godlessness was an ornament around their neck. They were self-satisfied. They were self-sustained. They were violent. They were divisive. They were indulgent. They mock and dominate men. The people of God were even led astray in this. So he was looking at the situation and he's like, humanity seems to be untouchable. Their lives are not ones of stress or struggle. They don't deal with the things that are important. So he was envious of all of this. How come I don't have this? He was saying to himself, at himself as we re, are revealed in the scripture. But even God's people are led astray. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. 2 Timothy 4.10. We just discovered this a few weeks ago on our Wednesday, our Thursday afternoon Bible study. Paul writes in the last letter to Timothy, he says, For Demas, having loved his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you see this? There was a time in which Demas had a life that would represent partnering with, with uh, Paul in establishing churches throughout the known world. That as Paul was facing struggles and Paul was facing challenges and Paul was in prison, Demas all of a sudden said, you know, I'm not going to hang around for this. So he left. And there was a time even in a man's name, in a life of a man named Lot, that he traveled to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us this, that he observed this location in which he was thrust into this environment. And the Bible says, and he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual contact of unprincipled men. What's being said here is this, 
Even though Lot was in an environment he understood about righteousness and a relationship with God, he stayed in an environment of corruption. It was there. And the Bible says that he struggled. Wasn't there a little more with that verse, Dan? Was there another part of that verse? I think we're missing verse 8. That's my fault. There it is. And he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So we understand that Lot wrestled with the, uh, the conduct of individuals that were not approved of God. So let's go back to the scripture we're looking at in Psalm 73. So here we are. Here is the writer of Psalm who was envious of those who did not seem to be facing difficulty and challenge. And then he says some interesting things. Even on the heels of people who do not regard God as some responsibility and commitment. So we see the point of end and envy, then we see the point of reason. And then he says this Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Then, or when, I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. He says this, I considered my life. He says, in vain, I've kept my heart pure. And I've washed my hands of innocence. He says, I have found no satisfaction, reward, benefit, or gratification. Everything that I did to uphold a life that I thought was best and honorable and good was in vain. He says, I have kept a pure heart. I have not kept, he says, in vain I have kept my heart pure. This pure heart is motivation and Devotion to godliness. I've worked hard at spirituality and making relationships right, but it's come to nothing. He says, I, I have washed my hands in innocence. Washed my hands, I'm free of guilt and of sin. And what has it brought me? When I look to the contrast of what the world has and its unrighteousness with no pain, sorrow, loss, or the significance of the things that I have achieved or desired. Basically, the writer says this, I've wasted my time. Have we ever struggled with this? Have you ever looked at the world? You know, being a Christian is a hard thing. More than the world and all of its influence and attitudes, our culture, and striving to form opinions and directions for society. We stand back sometimes and we want to think to ourselves, what's the use? Where's this going to go? Has it been worthwhile? Have I wasted my life and my time? The Bible says that the writer was stricken. He says this, as he's processing this, as his life is in torment, it's like, it's like this. He, on one hand, he 
It'd be like us as Christians. We we know God's word and we've been involved in ministry and we've seen God do some wonderful things. But then there's something that happens in our lives that challenges us to say, how come I'm feeling this way? Why am I thinking this way? And why am I doing all that when I could have all that? And we wonder, are we wasting our time? Are we living our lives? Is it worthwhile? And then he, the writer goes on to another level that I think is very interesting. He says, if I speak this, if I tell others about my doubt, if I tell others about my sense of vanity and emptiness and hopelessness, when I betray the next generation, If I say it's not true or it's not worth it, it betrays our brothers and our sisters. See, there seems to be this guilt of saying too much. We have to be careful about how we communicate our frustration spiritually and relationally. Because it affects those around us. When we have frustrations of our righteousness and we tell about our doubts and our troubles to those who hear, we can we can spiritually, we can future spiritually poison an environment in which God wants to work through. We have to be careful about the struggles that we face. Now, I'm not saying we can't talk to people. I'm not saying that we can find can't find counsel. I think those things are very, very important. But the verge and the point of frustration and the time in which we just spew out the sense of, is this right? Is this good? Am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my time? We have to be careful with that because we can hurt under individuals and their future potential in the kingdom of God. Now listen. The things that we talk about can affect others about our spirituality. The times in which we share our frustration with the church. When we share our frustration with our brothers and our sisters. When we wonder about the fact, is this really all worthwhile? Where is this going to go? And the pain that we experience that it has incurred about decisions and commitments that we've made. Don't be a reason for someone to have an excuse or a failure not to walk with God. Be careful what we say. See, the writer's saying this, if I had shared how he was envious of those who appeared to be those who are victorious and those who live abundantly in this life who have no orientation with God, he betrays those who are righteous and those who desire to walk with God. Be careful what we say. I'm thinking about this time, this pandemic. This pandemic has been divisive for churches, I hope you understand. (laughs) This pandemic has been a frustration for churches, I hope you understand. You see, there's going to be some of us who are members of our church who will choose not to come back. Maybe because of something that was said to them. Or maybe because they're uncomfortable with the restrictions that are placed upon us. And they're going to be vocal about that. 
We have to be careful how we relate to one another to the future. We will have people not come back because they have found a sense of spirituality and comfort in their own homes by just watching television. Now, I'm not dogging our brothers and sisters, and please don't get me wrong, because we do what we have to do, and I understand and respect it. But I just want to recommend or strongly encourage people to consider the coming back together again, because what we're missing is that camaraderie of our commitment to Christ. The time in which we are responsible with the giftedness that God has given to us to minister to one another. We miss a camaraderie, we miss the responsibility, and we also miss the accountability, which the Bible is very clear in regard to how we relate to one another. So let's be careful how we want to speak to people about what we are facing as a church. Not to say that, well, that's all been in vain, the church is worthless, it's hopeless, we can't get back together again, I don't get my own way. It's more like, let's get back together again to see what God is doing and encouraging us through His Word in our relationship with one another. So let's not be frustrated. This is not a surprise to God. This is a challenge. Now, don't you think it's interesting that we live in a generation that's facing something that very few throughout the history of Christianity have faced, and God has chosen you to live here during this time? Doesn't that raise a question in your mind? Now, I'm not saying we have not faced pandemics before. Oh yeah, a whole lot worse. But why has God chosen you now, in this time, to experience this? This is a time for Christians to shine. This is not a time for Christians to doubt. This is a, ch- a time for Christians to demonstrate God's presence in this world and not to hold up, but to be significant and to be people with a message. So here is this writer. He tells us, oh, I almost fell. I almost went over the hill. I almost met devastation. I looked to the lost world and I envied them. They don't struggle with the things I struggle with. And have I wasted my life in experiencing what I've experienced? If I tell somebody about it, will I destroy the generation that's coming behind me? He goes on to say, listen, I pondered to understand this. Until he came to the sanctuary of God. This means the presence of God. All of a sudden, he's saying, I get it. I get it. It's not about me. It's about God. He goes on to say in verses 18 through 20, he tells us this. Surely thou set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. They are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when they are aroused, wilt be uh, Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. So it's kind of like this. So is there no knowledge of the Most High? So they challenge God? The Bible tells us destruction is coming. It's not like if it's coming, it's when it's coming. The writer tells us here. It'll come in a time in which they feel secure. And in verse 20 it says, it's like a dream when they awaken. It's like all of a sudden they're thrust into the reality of who they are and the significance of their spirituality and who is God in reference to all this. So in verses 21 through 
26, it says, When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within, and when I was senseless with and ignorant, I was like a beast before thee. He says this, I was acting ridiculously. I was thinking wrong. He goes up. Aha. I get it now. You know, life is unfair. I know that we all have a sense of justice and fairness and righteousness. But I want to remind you that life is unfair. Amen? Amen. So it kind of dawned on me. I remember I was in 8th grade. And I had an 8th grade English teacher. And your pastor was not a real good student in junior high and high school. That's why I praise God for my wife. <laughs> she helped me through. Eighth grade, third quarter, Sequoia Junior High, Mr. Bergen. He was my English teacher. Mr. Bergen decided that during certain periods that there would be quizzes and tests that about two-thirds of a grade uh, of the grade for the quarter rested on the grade of a term paper. And so, your pastor was, like I said, not a really good, diligent student. I was the one that kind of put things off. And he kept warning us, now, this paper is due on Friday of such and such. And I kept delaying and kept delaying and kept delaying. And suddenly, it was Monday of the week that paper was due, and I hadn't started. Tuesday went by. And he said, listen, if you can't hand your paper in on Friday, if you hand it in late, it's going to be, uh, it'll be a third of what that paper's worth. Okay? So basically, if I don't get a paper in, I'm going to fail. And so here it is Thursday night, and I'm not done. It's not complete. And so anyway, I thought, you know, I have kind of this sub-temperature I used to use a lot when I was a kid. My temperature, normal temperature, is about 97, 96, 97 degrees, something like that. And so I told Mom, it's Friday. Mom didn't do the, know the paper was due. I said, Mom, I can't go to school. I'm sick. She took my temperature. Oh, you have a sub-temperature. Why don't you don't, don't, don't worry about school? And I'm thinking, oh, great. i got the whole weekend to work on this paper. So I got the paper through. Time came around for the class. Mr. Bergman walked up, and I put the paper on his desk. And he looked at me and goes, um, Mr. Smart. You know you're in trouble when they call you by your last name. Mr. Smart. He says, right now, you're, you have a D on this paper. I said, why? He says, because it's late. It was due on Friday. And I told you that you would forfeit a grade because of all this. And I looked at Mr. Bergman and I said, Mr. Bergman, that's unfair. <laughs> and Mr. Bergman said something to me. It's worth saying today. He said, Mr. Smart, you go home and you ask your mother to dig out your birth certificate. And if it says anything on your birth certificate that life is going to be fair to you, you bring it to me and I'll give you an A. I got a D. <laughs> life is unfair. But the psalmist brings us all around to bring us back to the reality of God. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. The psalmist says, I'm with you. I'm with you. 
He's taken hold of my right hand. Paul had an illustration about taking hold of the hand that had taken hold of him. Though this writer was struggling and he was falling, he was tripping about how life was important and he was thinking that he was missing the boat, whatever that looked like, he came to the conclusion that we need to, that we should, that we should always embrace, that our walk with God is significant. It is a life of faith. It is one of commitment and one of death. And he says, okay, I will follow you. You will counsel me with your wisdom, your knowledge, your goodness. And then afterward, I get to go to hell. I get to go to glory. So in closing today, he makes a profession. He says this, what do I have other than God? What is really important? The trinkets of the world? The ideas of our society? The values of our time? The temporariness of material? Time is passing. Life is changing. Who do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's all remember. Let's all remember as we struggle with the contrast of where the world is and how they're trying to bring security and relevance to life's existence in which God has called us to to rise above. And at last, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good, and I have made the Lord God my refuge. And rather than telling about his failures, and his flaws, and his slippingness to this, that I may tell of all thy words. God's words. Let's close with that. Then my Father, we thank you for this psalm. The psalm of one who is struggling with the, the influence of the world and the balance of values and the challenges. Lord, we see that there appears to be those that are not struggling. And we wonder oftentimes as we strive to do what's right, to move forward. Lord, we don't want to lose ground. We know that there's unfairness in this world. And the Bible says that you will judge, not if, but when. But Lord, our desire is to take your hand and walk with you. So whatever it is that we face personally, physically, and spiritually, I thank you that we've not been left alone and that you desire to lead us through. You are that great shepherd. Lord, if there have been words of doubt that have been put into our minds and held in our hearts about your goodness and your righteousness and your power, Lord, we would ask you, you would erase those. And Lord, we would come to you and ask that you would forgive us if we have said words that would raise doubt in the minds and the hearts of those around us about the importance of the church, your people, your role in the world, as well as this community. And Father, we would ask that you would help us to be sensitive about the things that we say. But in the meantime, we will walk with you. We will endure. 
you will be glorified. You will give us counsel. And we thank you that one day we will see you face to face. So we bless you today, and we thank you in Jesus' name.